0: chapter 28 of boston blackie by jack boyle this librivox recording is in the public domain man to man i have no rumors but a miss collins and her mother who is an invalid poor soul they have the two rooms in the attic she was telling the deputy the girl is learning shorthand and don't go out much The old lady is crippled with rheumatism and can't leave the rooms. Well, they are nice, quiet, respectable people, sir. Sherwood was deeply puzzled. From the garbage can behind this house had come a half-dozen loaves of bread in three days, with the crusts, and only the crusts, eaten off. He had come to the house after painstaking preparation, feeling that Blackie and Victory were within his grasp. The landlady's story of the girl who studied shorthand, and an invalid mother, found no place in his theory of what he would find there, and yet it was evident the woman spoke the truth. "'What does the girl look like? What is the color of her hair?' he asked. "'Red, sir, a beautiful red, like a polished copper kettle.' Mary's hair was coal-black. For the first time, Martin Sherwood's confidence was shaken. "'When did they come here?' he asked. Let me see. The woman reckoned on her fingers. It was a week ago, Thursday, sir. In the evening, they saw my advertisement in the paper and came just before I went to work, which is nine o'clock, sir. Blackie had escaped early in the morning of the day she mentioned. On that Thursday night, he and Mary had disappeared from the lodging house, which was their first place of refuge. The date and hour of their arrival decided Sherwood. He would have to look at this red-haired girl and her invalid mother. "'I would like to go up and see them for a moment,' he told the women. "'I'm an officer,' he showed his star. "'Oh, no, nothing wrong at all. I just want to see them. I like to keep track of people in the district.' "'Certainly, sir. I'll call Miss Collins and—' "'No, no, that isn't necessary,' hastily interrupted Sherwood. "'I'll just step upstairs and knock.' Though he tried to step lightly, as Sherwood's tread sounded on the uncarpeted stairway, there was a sudden shuffling of feet on the floor above. He smiled, for that augured well, and he felt for the gun slung just inside his coat. Then he rapped. Muffled sounds came from behind the door. A chair squeaked as it was pushed across the floor. A few seconds of silence. Then plain and unmistakable came the sound of a woman sobbing hysterically. Sherwood tried the door, found it locked, and knocked again peremptorily. The door suddenly was flung open, and in the flood of light from within a woman faced him, a woman with a wreath of bronze hair that should have been black, a woman with tears on cheeks that were as bloodless as death, a woman whom he instantly recognized as Boston Blackie's Mary. Martin Sherwood sprang inside with drawn revolver, ready to answer the stream of lead he expected from some corner of the room. None came instead he saw a woman white-haired and evidently feeble sitting beside a bed with bowed head while her body shook with convulsive sobs on the bed covered with a sheet that was drawn up over the face lay a silent motionless form that told its own story sudden disappointment gripped martin sherwood's heart had the man he had rated so highly cheated him of his long-coveted triumph only by the coward's expedient of suicide where's boston blackie he demanded, his gun still covering the room. Mary pointed silently to the still figure on the bed. "'Dead?' exclaimed the deputy warden. "'When? how?' "'An hour ago,' she sobbed. "'You starved him to death in your prison.' She dropped to her knees. "'God have mercy on us now,' she prayed. Sherwood strode to the bed, beside which the aged woman still sat sobbing, and leaning over lifted the sheet as he did so his gun for the first time failed to cover all the room beneath the sheet instead of the face he expected he saw a roll of blankets carefully moulded and tied into the semblance of a human form before he could turn cold steel was pressed against the base of his brain drop that gun sherwood said boston Blackie's voice from behind him drop it quick raise it one inch and you'll be as dead as you thought i was sherwood hesitated as a full realization of the new situation flashed through his mind then he smiled as he thought of the posse he had thrown around the house and let his revolver slip through his fingers to the bed here was a worthy antagonist a bit too worthy as the cards lay just then but the deal was far from done pick up his gun mary and lay it on the table in the corner well out of the deputy's way directed Blackie, And see if he has another I don't care to move the muzzle of my gun from his neck just yet. Now, he continued, slip off these skirts. I'm not overly well used to them, even though I've worn them for ten days, and if Mr. Sherwood should forget the company he's in and get suddenly reckless, they might be in my way. Now turn around, Sherwood, and face the music,' ordered Blackie a moment later. The deputy warden turned and faced the convict behind whom lay a discarded white wig and an old woman's garments. He met his captor's eyes without a tremor, and smiled. "'Well done, Blackie, I must admit,' he said. "'But I should have known that when you didn't shoot as I came in, things weren't what they seemed.' "'I didn't expect you, Sherwood,' Blackie replied. "'But as you see, I made preparations to receive you in case you came.' The convict's face grew pale and suddenly grave. His grip on the gun leveled at the deputy's head, tightened. "'You understand, of course, Sherwood.' "'I've got to kill you,' he said then. as matters stand? Naturally it wouldn't surprise me,' the deputy answered. His voice was absolutely calm and unshaken, his eyes without the remotest trace of fear. "'If you have anything to say or do or think, be quick,' said the convict. "'I haven't. Thank you.' The men stared into each other's eyes, the silence broken only by Mary's sobs, "'I hate to kill a man as brave as you, in cold blood,' said Boston Blackie slowly. "'You're a brave man, Sherwood, even when you don't hold all the cards in the game as you do inside your prison. I hate to kill you, but I've got to. I can't tie and gag you. You'd get free before we could get away from the city. I can't risk that.' "'Naturally not,' said Sherwood. "'I couldn't trust your promise not to bother me, in a life-and-death matter like this, if I let you go alive.' continued Blackie, with troubled eyes. "'I wouldn't give it, if you did.' There was no hesitation on the answer. "'Well, then,' the gun that covered the deputy warden's head swayed downward till the muzzle covered his heart. "'Are you ready?' "'Any time,' said Sherwood. The hammer rose under the pressure of the convict's finger on the trigger. Mary Dawson, crying hysterically now, turned away her face and covered her ears, "'Do you want to go, Mary, before I—I I do what I must do?' asked Blackie, realizing what the scene with its inevitable end must mean to the girl. "'It would be better for you to go, dear.' "'No, no!' she cried. "'I want to share with you the all blame for what you do. I won't go till you do.' Sherwood turned his eyes curiously on the woman. Sherwood knew what he would have risked, for such a woman, and such love. Boston Blackie's face was strangely gray. The hammer of the revolver rose, hesitated, fell, then rose again. The deputy, his gaze returning from the woman's face, looked into the gun unflinchingly and in silence. Another pause freighted with that sort of tension that crumbles the strongest. Then slowly the convict let the muzzle of his weapon drop below the heart of the man he faced. "'Sherwood!' he said in a voice that broke between his words, "'I hate you as I hate no living man, "'but I can't kill you as you stand before me unarmed and helpless. "'I'm going to give you a chance for your life.' He stepped backward and picked up the Deputy Warden's revolver. He pushed a table between himself and the man he couldn't kill. He laid the revolvers side by side on it, one pointing toward him, the other toward Sherwood.' The clock on the mantel showed three minutes of the hour. "'Sherwood,' he said, "'in three minutes that clock will strike. I'm exactly as far from the guns as you. On the first stroke of the clock, we'll reach together for them, and the quickest hand wins.' Martin Sherwood studied Boston Blackie's face with something in his eyes no other man had ever seen there. He glanced toward the guns on the table. It was true he was exactly as near them as the convict. Nothing prevented him from reaching now and firing at the first touch of his finger on the trigger. Blacky deliberately had surrendered his irresistible advantage to give him, Martin Sherwood, his prison torturer, an even chance for life. For the first time the deputy's eyes were unsteady, and his voice throaty and shaken. "'I won't bargain with you, Blacky,' he said you're afraid to risk can even break you know i'm not sherwood answered his gaze turning once more to the woman who stood by the door staring panic-stricken it was plain that the issue to be decided in that room was life or death to her as well as to the men boston Blackie reached toward his gun hoping the deputy warden would do likewise and end in one quick exchange of shots the strain he knew was breaking his nerve Sherwood let Blackie recover his weapon without moving a muscle. Once more the convict's revolver rose till it covered Martin Sherwood's heart. They stood again as they had been, the deputy at the mercy of the escaped prisoner. Seconds passed, then minutes, without a word or a motion on either side of the table, over which the triangular tragedy was being settled not at all as any of those concerned had planned. The strain was unbearable the muscles of the convict's throat twitched his face was drawn and distorted pick up the gun and defend yourself he cried no shouted sherwood the calm which his mighty will had until then sustained snapping like an over tightened violin string you want to make me feel myself a murderer cried blacky in anguish why didn't i give you the bullet for bullet when you came in the door i could have killed you then now i can't unless you'll fight once more i ask you will you take an even break no cried sherwood again with a great cry the cry of a strong man broken and beaten boston blackie threw his gun upon the floor you win sherwood he sobbed losing self-control completely for the first time in a life of daily hazards you've beaten me he staggered drunkenly toward mary and folded at her in his arms i tried to force myself to pull the trigger by thinking of the life we hoped for together dear but i couldn't do it he moaned brokenly i'll go back with him now everything is over i'm glad now you didn't dear she cried clinging to him it would have been murder i don't want you to do that even to save our happiness but i'll wait for you dear one wait till your time is done and you come back to me again Boston Blackie straightened his shoulders and, turning to Sherwood, held out his wrists for the handcuffs. "'Come, come,' he urged. "'For God's sake, don't prolong this. Don't stand there gloating. Take me away.' Martin Sherwood, with something strangely new transfiguring the face Boston Blackie knew and hated, reached to the table and picked up his gun slowly. Just as slowly he dropped it into his pocket. He looked into the two grief-racked faces before him, long and silently. "'I'm sorry to have disturbed you folks,' he said quietly at last. "'I came here looking for an escaped convict named Boston Blackie. I have found only you, Miss Collins, and your mother. I'm sorry my misinformation has subjected you both to annoyance. The police officers who are outside—' The deputy warden opened a crack in the window curtain and pointed out to the dim shapes in the darkness, and who surround this house will be withdrawn at once. Had Boston Blackie been in this room, and had he by some mischance killed me, his shot would have brought a dozen men armed with sawed-off shotguns. Escape for him was absolutely impossible. I saw to that before I entered here alone to capture him, but it all has been a blunder, The man I wanted to take back to prison is not here, and I can only hope my apology will be accepted." Blackie stared at him with blazing, unbelieving eyes. From Mary came a cry in which all the pent-up anguish of the lifetime that had been lived in the last half-hour found a sudden relief. "'Good-night, folks,' said Martin Sherwood, offering Boston Blackie his hand. The convict caught it in his own and the men looked into each other's eyes for a second. Then the deputy warden went out and closed the door behind him. Mary sprang into Blackie's arms, and they dropped together into a chair, dazed with a happiness greater than either had ever known. "'He is a man,' said Blackie. "'He is a man, even though he is a copper.' Martin Sherwood let himself out of the house, and beckoned the cordon of police to him as he looked back at the windows of the attic rooms, and spoke softly to himself. "'He is a man,' he said. "'He is a man, even though he is a convict.'" It was the greatest praise and the greatest concession either had ever made to another man. Three days later a steamer passed out through the Golden Gate. On the upper deck were a man and a woman, hand in hand, with eyes misty with happiness, Boston Blackie and his Mary. End of chapter 28 End of Boston Blackie by Jack Boyle Recording by Winston Tharp